This is The Guardian. Today, Britain's drink problem and how lockdown accelerated alcohol deaths. A quick note before we start, this episode does contain potentially triggering accounts of addiction, heavy drinking, and one account of suicidal thoughts. Please take care while listening. At the beginning of the pandemic, the warning signs were there. People were isolated, stressed, and all too often, turning to alcohol as a way to escape their reality. There were little voices saying, this isn't real. It's, oh, it's like being on holiday, you know, it's, it's lockdown. Um, who cares? I'm not going to see anybody today. I don't have to be sober. Kathy Edge had always been a social drinker. But during that first lockdown, retired and living alone, booze became a habit. The blurring between kind of enjoying it and feeling nice and it, it just being a thing that you needed to function... Um, that, that came on very quickly. Within months, her drinking had escalated. I think in two days, I would get through a litre of vodka and probably about four bottles of wine, minimum. You can get through that. And, you know, that would, that would floor most people. Didn't even feel drunk. All enjoyment had gone. That This was just, you know, it, was, it had almost replaced how I refuelled myself. Um, that's what I needed just to exist. Across the UK, alcohol sales boomed and drinking became a national coping mechanism. There were repeated warnings about the risks. Experts, including Dr Stephen Ryder, a liver specialist, sounded the alarm. And that home drinking thing is the, is the key for me. If that continues, we will see more people running into trouble and far more people dying of it. More than two years down the line, the consequences of that excess drinking are stark. Research from the University of Sheffield has found we could see more than a million extra hospital admissions and an excess of 25,000 deaths. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, the deadly consequences of lockdown drinking. Kathy Edge, can you tell me a bit about what your life looked like before the pandemic? Life was good. Uh, I'd not worked for a couple of years uh, due to ill health, but I had a, I had a good social uh, circle. I had good support for my um, mental health. Um, I'd reconnected with my family. I'd moved back to Wales after kind of 30 years in London working. Mm. Um, life was all right. It was, you know, it was a smaller life than I was used to in London, but it was it was pleasant. Well, when that first lockdown announcement came on March 23rd, 2020, a lot of us felt really anxious about entering this really extraordinary period with not knowing how long it would go on or knowing how bad it would get. How did you respond initially to that news? I thought I'd be fine. I mean, I like my own company. I, I, I live on my own. I, I, like I said, I thought I was doing really, really well. Um, I'd, I'd started to read some books that I had from uni, um, just, you know, to exercise my brain a bit more. I was going out um, and walking 
as much as I could in, you know, that, that we were allowed. As I say, when I look back now, <laughs> I thought I was doing so well and I clearly wasn't. How fast did things go downhill for you during that first lockdown? Oh, really, really quickly. Um, I, I thought I was doing really well. Um, I was talking to people. I was on the phone to people kind of every day. I think the downfall came. We did a Zoom cocktail class um, with some friends and I'd always loved kind of cocktails and wine and stuff. So joined in very happily with that. And there was bits left over the next day and it was like, well, it's two o'clock. What, what the hell? I'm not going out. Nothing's open. I'm not seeing anybody. And um, drinking at different times without any kind of consequences, as I thought at the time, um, it, it just became very habitual very quickly. And suddenly I was drinking every two hours. I'd sleep for two hours and get up and, and have to drink. Um, there was no enjoyment. I didn't get drunk. Um, it, it just was the only thing that was in my day. At what point did you realise that your drinking had become a serious issue? I think I, I think the first time I lied about it, um, I was getting my groceries delivered, as most people were. A friend was taking my shopping up for me, and one day mentioned, "Oh, that's a lot of that's a lot of wine." Um, and I made sure then that the people helping me with my shopping, I rotated them so nobody saw how much I was drinking. I think when I look back, that's the first, that's the first real um, lie that, that, that I, I got to about, about drinking. And, and once you start lying about it, I think you're in trouble. Um, what was your relationship with alcohol like prior to the pandemic? Heavily flirtatious, I guess. I, I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've always really, really enjoyed socialising as I say, cocktails and um, and wine and stuff. And I probably drank more than my friends, but it was a pleasure. It was it was something to look forward to. Um, and, you know, during lockdown, it became something that, that there was simply no pleasure in it at all. And during the lockdown, how much were you drinking? And what was your poison, as it were? Uh, <laughs> poison's the right word. Um, I was drinking wine and spirits, but vodka, the cheapest drinks, I, I went from enjoying really high-end stuff to just what was on offer, you know, just swill, um, what, what, whatever litre bottle of vodka was kind of the cheapest. The, the amount you're drinking is is not really um, the point. It, it's it's how you drink. It's I was drinking with no pleasure. I was drinking because I couldn't see any other way of functioning. Can you... Describe for me that the how quickly that changed from you being a social drinker, someone who enjoyed a drink, to suddenly now what you describe as drinking with no pleasure, but feeling that you needed it and it becoming this sort of desperate urge. It was a rapid onset, a really rapid onset. As I say, I've got a fairly high tolerance for alcohol and, and not having any consequences, not having to get up the next day, um, not having to turn up anywhere on time. Um, and I, I started to, to just really let myself go. Um, I think it was, I think three months was, was when it got the very tight grip, um, the, the, the grip that I found difficult to, to shake off. Um, what would your day typically look like then? Um, wake up maybe, wake up whenever, it, it, it didn't matter. Um, straight to the fridge to get a drink. 
Um, I'd stopped reading at that point. Um, I was just kind of watching TV, just laying on the sofa. Um, might make a few phone calls before I was too uh, insensible. Um, so kind of lying to people again, basically, oh, how are you? I'm fine. Um, and then just, you know, I'd spend a lot of day thinking about how much alcohol I had and, and whether it was enough. Kathy, by the summer of 2020, how was your body responding? I mean, what were the hangovers like? And did you ever sober up enough to let yourself feel what you were doing to yourself? Oh, there wasn't a hangover because I, I wasn't getting, I just felt awful the entire time. Uh, it, was a, it was a permanent hang, And I, I don't mean a, a bad head and, oh, I need a fried breakfast hangover. I'm talking about feeling physically wretched continuously and a friend came over to to pick up the groceries for me a, a dear dear friend who I owe a lot to and he just looked at me and he said Kathy you look like you're dead you can't walk you can't look after yourself you're not interested in looking after yourself and he said um uh, I'm not leaving till you call an ambulance because you need to be in hospital and do you did you accept at that point how serious it was yeah yeah I did I did I asked him to take all the alcohol out the uh, away. I just said, please just take it away. I, don't, I can't see it anymore. I don't want to see it. I'd started to accept I was very ill and I'd started to set up um, making sure I had all the contact details for kind of pensions and, and wills and, and all that kind of stuff and getting in touch with some older friends that I used to work with and kind of saying, I, I, I have a feeling I might not last. I don't think I'm going to see Christmas. Um, and I was beginning to accept it, I think, but I still couldn't stop. And what was the tipping point? Was it that moment where your friend made you call the ambulance? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Uh, because he's a, he Ben, his name is. He's a very, very non-confrontational kind of guy. He's he's very gentle, very lovely, and he said, "I'm not leaving." I'm not leaving until you phone an ambulance. And he was very, I could see he was quite concerned. And also he was a little angry, I think, at the state I got myself into. So when he when he stood there and told you that you needed to get help and you had to get help and the ambulance was on its mm -hmm. way, what was going through your head? What was going through my head was um, how selfish this was to go into hospital when COVID was was rampant. Um, people needing real help rather than me who, who self-inflicted. Um, I don't give myself a, a hugely bad time about drinking anymore uh, because I understand more about addiction. But I was just thinking how selfish it was. I shouldn't go into hospital. The hospitals are full. Um, I was really giving myself a hard time. And also it was it was coming home as well. This is This is going to be the end of my drinking. This is almost certainly going to be the end of my drinking. And when you got to the hospital, what did the doctors say? So I was very lucky, like I am in most things in my life. Um, I got in very quickly, um, room to myself. The doctor came in the next morning, very, very imposing, very alpha male, very um, dominant kind of guy, very lovely, 
But uh, he said, oh, I'm Dr. Yada Yada. Um, do you have something you want to say to me? And I thought, what's he talking about? And then I thought, oh, right, he's introduced himself as a liver specialist. So I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. And that was the most upsetting and liberating moment that I can remember in my life. And how did it feel to say it out loud? That, and was it the first time you'd even admitted it to yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I'd admitted it to myself, but I'd, I'd never vocalised it. But saying it to a professional, uh, especially a liver specialist, and he just, it, I thought, I, I, I need to be honest here. I, ca I can't lie. I can't pretend that blood sample is, is not mine. I can't do any of that. I've got nowhere to go. I'm literally backed into a corner. And if I don't get honest now, I'm not going to see the end of Christmas. Um, and he basically said, uh, right, we can work with that. And that's when my treatment started. Dr. Stephen Ryder, you're a consultant hepatologist at Nottingham University Hospital, which means you specialise in the liver. Now, We've just heard from Cathy Edge in Wales, who gave us her account of how her drinking in lockdown completely spiralled and left her ending up in hospital. From what we understand, she isn't a wholly rare case. Can you tell us about what you've been seeing on the ground as a doctor during the last couple of years? Yes, I, I guess um, the, the background is that Britain has had serious problems with alcohol for some time and those have increased over many years actually. So if you like there are lots of people in our population who were drinking heavily before lockdown. What happened then I think was that um, those people who were already probably drinking more than they should drank a lot more again. That um, meant that they started to run into physical health problems and, and often very quickly after after drinking large amounts. So we so I think increases in all sorts of alcohol related problems. Now, obviously, from my viewpoint, the liver is the main um, target and the, and the work that I do is, is with, with people with liver disease. But it's every aspect of it, really, from withdrawal uh, uh, fits due to alcohol through to liver disease. So definitely an increase um, that occurred during lockdown. And looking back now, there were so many jokes and memes churned out about the nation's booze habits during lockdown where it was considered wine time all the time or every night's a Friday night. But actually, a lot of people were really struggling. Do you think there was a failure to take this seriously? There was very much a failure to take it seriously and I think those um, rather flippant responses to it tell you a lot about our culture in relation to alcohol. Um, we are hiding things from ourselves that are there in plain view. That alcohol is a, a drug that we uh, use far too much in our society. Uh, and therefore, I think it's partly a defensive mechanism that people then have to put it into the joke box rather than the something that is causing very serious harm. What do you make of the current research which suggests that we could see an excess of 25,000 deaths as a result of those changed drinking habits? I think unless we do something about it, then 
I think that's very realistic. You know, if you only have to look at the trajectory of deaths from liver disease over the last 20 years, it's already risen very significantly, and that was mainly due to alcohol. It needs to be recognised as a, as a very significant problem, and there needs to be, I think, both societal action, so destigmatizing people running into trouble with alcohol. It can happen to all of us, really, if we're in a stressful enough place and, and uh, given that alcohol is so uh, universally available. And then there needs to be much more in the way of treatment services for people, um, easy access to getting some help. This should be regarded as a medical problem like any other medical problem for which there are very good solutions actually. So if people are aware they, they, they are developing a problem, then actually the alcohol services that we do have are very effective and can stop a lot of this um, epidemic of liver disease that I see coming down the line. What do you see as the solutions here? Like, What would your message to government be? I think we need to recognise there is a really serious issue here that uh, culturally in the UK we do have a problem with alcohol and that's a very significant and growing one and that the government does I think have within its power the ability to make a very big difference. Let's fund treatment services properly. Let's do something that destigmatizes it so people don't feel ashamed that they run into problems with alcohol. Those are relatively simple, relatively cheap things that would have a big impact. Ben Robinson, you're an alcohol awareness campaigner and you're now in your third year of recovery. Before we went into lockdown, you'd been sober for about nine months. How was life going? I mean, it was it was good. I, I was about nine months sober. Um, I was learning how to live a new life. It was one of, I guess, forming new relationships, new habits, um, getting into new routines. I was busy in the midst of doing all that. And then, of course, obviously, it all came crashing down, so to speak. Can you tell me a bit about what your relationship with alcohol was like? Before you got to sobriety? Yeah, it was one of destruction, um, is probably the simplest way to put it. I I got to the point where I nearly uh, lost my life a couple of times. Um, it got to the point where I needed to change it basically in order to, to stay alive. But it, it wasn't always that way. Um, it, it kind of at the beginning, I I didn't think I had a problem and thought I was a kind of you know young guy enjoying booze the way that everyone else was little did I know that every kind of time I had a drink or every different relationship I formed with alcohol it was going to come to to what it did. Well given that you used to spend days and nights drinking alone at home and now suddenly you were forced back into that mode having had nine months of living a new life it was back to almost square one how did you retain your self-control and how did you cope? I kept busy is the simple answer. Um, it, it was really hard. I had to take it back to basics. Um, you know, I went to rehab and essentially built a toolbox of things that I could practice in early sobriety. Um, that'd be everything from, you know, writing a gratitude list through to just simply practicing saying to myself that, you know, I, I am living a new life and this is the new me. I had to kind of retain composure that this was the new me and that it wasn't an option to go back. Um, and that's quite difficult when you have the devil on your shoulder saying, you know, remember these old times when you're standing in the kitchen alone. Um, it would have been incredibly easy to to kind of go back to the way that I was. But 
you know, the same flame of hope that got me into rehab was the same flame of hope that was alive when I said, no, you know, I'm, I'm going to nail this. Do you think there is enough general awareness of what an unhealthy relationship with alcohol looks like? No, I think the awareness is something that's lacking. And I think that people look at the kind of quantities and the types of drinks and the way that people drink too much when actually it's our behaviour that matters. I think, you know, there's too even on social media, you see people, you know, eight pints deep and kind of all this. And that actually means nothing. It because it's not the substance that's the problem, it's the relationship with the substance. Um, and that's something that I live by is, you know, if it's not alcohol, it's something else. And people are often either escaping something or they're using it as a crutch or whatever that might be. But that could be one glass of wine for you, it could be 10. And so the awareness about the behaviours around alcohol isn't, isn't voiced enough. Coming up. Kathy deals with the health consequences of her lockdown addiction and starts to rebuild her life. Kathy, it's been about 18 months since you left hospital and have been in recovery. You're sober now, but can you tell me what impact has drinking had on your body? Oh, my body's absolutely banjaxed. Um, it, it's compromised everything. I can't walk properly still. I use a cane to walk and I can't walk very far um, without being indelicate because the paralysis around my saddle area, I have bouts of uh, incontinence. One of the things that happens very often when you get sober is you get terrible sugar cravings. I, th I think it's that you want a dopamine hit or something. Um, and I started eating sweet stuff for, for pretty much the first time in my adult life. And I'm now diabetic um, because because, I, I, you know, because I'm an addict. <laughs> if you're going to have sugar, you're going to have sugar like an addict. My liver is severely damaged. I mean, the liver is a pretty forgiving um, organ, but um, I, I have, you know, damaged it terribly. Uh, my teeth have started falling out because I was drinking sugary drinks and, and not eating properly. So I've lost a few teeth. Um, my hair had started falling out, but that thankfully seems to have stopped and it, it seems to be back to being a bit bit thicker. But um, in terms of general health, I, I, I would not pass an MOT at the moment. And obviously you had a real wake up call in terms of like physical health and going into hospital. But since then, have you ever been tempted to drink again? And how hard is it to stay sober? Um, I'm, I'm lucky because I have that added bonus. Basically, the liver specialist said, you know, if you carry on drinking, you're, you're, you're going to die. Um, that, that's the be all and end all of it. If I, if I drink again, because I won't have one, um, I, I, will, I will die very shortly. So that's, that's, a, that's a hell of a... Uh, hell of a call to action to avoid something also I get I get every time I get up in the morning when I swing my feet onto the floor when I get out of bed I get pain from my legs and weirdly that that's actually really helpful it reminds me straight away what I have to do that day and all I have to do every day is stay sober Kathy do you think lockdown exposed a problem that was already there or do you think it actually caused your addiction I'd say it exposed a problem that was already there. Um, I, I did, you know, my, my social life beforehand was drink-based. 
Um, so I think it, yeah, it definitely exposed something rather than caused it. We've now had multiple news reports about the long-term effects of lockdown drinking on public health and warnings about up to 25,000 excess deaths that are estimated as a result. Cathy, how does it feel reading those reports? It feels... Um, when I read them, I, I feel I feel great sympathy with the people who've, who've not been as lucky as me. Um, and, and, and I understand it, you know, people, I understand more about addiction now and people that give you, you know, a hard time about being an alcoholic or whatever, if they don't understand addiction in this day and age, I'm not interested in their opinion, but, um, it's the nurses, they said that, you know, they're seeing more and more people with, with liver damage, more and more people with cirrhosis of the liver and very untypical kind of middle-aged women and men, middle-class people who worked, um, people that you wouldn't peg as alcoholics, um, just very, very different profiles of people. Um, but it, it's a huge warning. And because I'm sober now, I see how much alcohol is around us in, you know, watching TV or reading a book or reading the paper or, you know, just, just jokes about it. It's 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 everywhere. Sort of embedded in the fabric of national culture, isn't it? Completely, completely. It is completely embedded um and for most people it's not a problem um but for some it is and services need to be a bit better for for people in that position as i say i i i'm kind of in a very fortunate position where i know what will happen to me if i drink again so i can't drink again um other people aren't as fortunate as me and they need more support um than is available at the moment do you feel better now? Like, is, is life better for you now that you're on the other side of... Oh, God, yeah. Oh, it, yeah, life is so much better. I've, I've got a chance. I'm not hiding behind alcohol. I have to deal with feelings um, as they are in the raw, and it's, it, it's a much better way. You know, it's like, oh, I've had a bad day. I'm going to have a drink. No, I've had a bad day. I've got to think about why I had a bad day. Uh, given all the health stuff, it would be, I guess, quite easy to be a bit down on myself and a bit sorry for myself but I've I've had another chance you know if if I carry on like that doctor said I could have discharged myself from from hospital that day I could have gone home and within two weeks I would have been dead uh, but I didn't I've had a second chance I've got nieces I've I've got who I adore that I want to see grow up um I've got all these things in front of me now that that I can see with some clarity I mean my my lifespan will probably not be as long as it would be without the liver damage um, which just makes every moment so precious, even dull moments, even when <laughs> you know, you're waiting for Coronation Street to come on or something. Those are still big moments. You can do a lot. You can do a lot for yourself in those moments if you're prepared to do the work. Cathy, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you, Nasheen. It's been a pleasure. That was Cathy Edge. My thanks to her, Ben Robinson and Dr Stephen Ryder. If you are struggling with your drinking or are worried about someone close to you, there are people who can help. Drinkline is the National Alcohol Helpline. You can call them on 0300 123 1110. And if you're struggling with your mental health, do get in touch with the Samaritans on 116 123 or email joe at samaritans.org. 
And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Sammy Kent. Have a lovely weekend. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.